This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share, brought to you by Secret Keeper Counselling, where we talk all things mental health with clients and clinicians. I'm Francis Carlton, and I am the Secret Keeper. As usual, there may be triggers, laughter, some learning, some profanity. Make yourself a cup of tea, sit back and relax as I'm joined by Ashley and Ashley's going to share some secrets today. Welcome, Ashley. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) So you are a bat carer. Yes. But you're also more than that. So what are your three words to describe yourself? Um, I think strange is quite a good one. People think I'm a bit strange and we'll probably find that out later as we go. Um, I like to consider myself as a compassionate person, particularly towards animals and and people. And I like to think that I'm kind. Mm. I think kindness goes a long way, particularly nowadays. So I like to try and be as kind as I can. So tell me about kind. Tell me how you're kind as as much as you can be. I think it's, um, just little things. Um, just because you don't know what someone's been going through, like, I don't know, someone does your order wrong, you know, instead of getting cross, it's, oh, excuse me, you know, just being kind, um, just helping people. You see someone struggling with something or just being a nice person, I suppose, mm. not being, um, yeah, just being nice to people and just helping them when you see they need help or stepping out of your comfort zone to help them or stretching yourself a bit more to help them. So, yeah, just being kind, I suppose, mm. yeah. Yeah. And you and you certainly, you certainly are exhibiting that in your wild wildlife yes yeah 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 so you look after bats I do you also help with kangaroos as well yeah so um I volunteer for a couple of groups um I do uh, quite a lot in bats Queensland um which is obviously working with flying foxes and microbats um and I also do volunteering with wild care Australia so I'm actually a trauma carer in there so that means that I'm licensed to carry um some select drugs and that which allows me to sedate and euthanize critically injured wildlife which predominantly is kangaroos uh, macropods really wallabies um because when they, they suffer when they get hit by cars it's quite a significant injuries they have mm-hmm. um and there's really no coming back from that so that's pretty much what i do yeah. in wild care is that and i do look after echidnas as well i have an echidna here too so oh do you yeah he's pretty cute so yeah echidnas are yeah, amazing yeah i might get a photograph of the echidna. yes yeah you can yeah, come and yeah. see him yeah yeah so how did you get involved in looking after wildlife because you're not you grew up in the UK I did yeah so it was actually my mum um she worked for my dad's business and she was looking for something else to help put her time into as well um and she found out about wild care um she cared for the all the unwanted birds so the currawongs the crows the magpies um and then she found out about bats um, and then she kind of got hooked into bats. And once I saw a bat, you, you never go back, basically, is what I like to say. <laughs> so um, it was really my mum that kind of drew me in. And as I said about being a compassionate person, um, seeing wildlife is struggling out there and there's no one looking out for them. So that kind of drew me to wanting to help those who, you know, can't help themselves. So, mm. And yeah. I'm, I'm hearing that you've really sort of, you lean towards the animals that have a bit of a bad rap. Yeah, yeah. So the bats particularly, um, 
they're just so misunderstood and a lot of people don't like them. There's just heard rumors and misinformation and there's a lot of fear and ignorance around bats. Um, and once you get to know bats, they're just the most beautiful, inquisitive, cheeky creatures around and you just fall in love with them and your heart kind of aches for them because they're so innocent yet they're so hated in the public eye so what sort of what sort of things because what sort of things are people saying about bats and specifically flying foxes as well yeah it predominantly is the flying foxes i think um because they do carry um you might have heard the australian bat lissavirus so that is the only disease that you can get directly from a bat itself um and there's a lot of scaremongering and fear about they carry diseases and they're vermin and they're they're dirty animals and it's more that fear and that unknown. Um but the Australian lysovirus, the only way you can get that is through a transfer of saliva through a bite, um, or if they've licked their claw and they've scratched. Um and less than um 0.7% of the bat population actually carry that disease anyway. So that's less than one in a thousand. So less than one percent carries yes. that, yeah. that that virus. Yes, so. and, and just because the virus works, it sort of floats around in the system and it travels to the brain. So once it hits the brain, it becomes active. So even though they could carry the disease, they can't transmit it until it's in the brain. And that window is only about five to 11 days that it's actually active and can transfer. And once it is active, it's already shutting down the host. They're already sort of ill and on the floor and dying. So when we rescue bats, it is seen in 7% of rescued bats, but that's because they're injured and they're on the ground. So that's when we are handling and dealing with them. So but the, the media in particular, there was a study done and I think it was something about 85% of any media relating to bats was negative. And it's just a complete misunderstanding, a miseducation, it's that fear. But bats aren't aggressive animals. A lot of people think they swoop them, but they can't fly like a bird. They can't just take off from the ground. Bats have to drop like a paraglider to catch the air to fly. So another misunderstanding is, oh, they're swooping me, but they're not. They're just dropping to fly away. And it is the Catching biggest. Catching those air currents. It, it, exactly. So it is really just a misunderstanding. And when I rescue the animals, a lot of people go, oh, it's breathed in my direction. Am I going to die? And all, oh, my dog's licked it. Is my dog going to, my dog's licked the kids. Are the kids going to die? Do I need to get the dog euthanized? And it's just this complete fear and people get carried away. Um, it's not until you talk to them like I am to you now and just sort of explaining the facts, the statistics, that people go, oh, I didn't realize that. And whenever they see their face, they always go, oh, can I get a photo? It's so cute. I didn't realize how cute they look. So they do have the most yeah. adorable, very sort of puppy, yeah, well, puppy-like um, faces, and, they, and their babies are actually called pups. Yes, yeah. So they're called pups. Um, but if you want a fun fact as well, um, the reason they're called flying foxes is when um, uh, they colonised Australia. They didn't know what these animals were, but they thought, oh, they look like foxes, but they fly. So flying foxes. So, mm. but yeah, the little pups are very, very cute. If you want to get anyone hooked on bats, it's the babies that does it. So. Yeah. Um, very sweet and endearing yes. creatures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Very much. Yeah. And their 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 body structures are actually remarkably similar to our own. Unlike yes. unlike a lot of a lot of the animals that we care yes. for as wildlife. Yeah. Animals. So um, I mean, as with any animal, there is sort of an evolutionary link between them. But the flying foxes and us in particular, we have pretty much the same skeletal structure. 
um, the, the pelvis, everything, um, even their, so their wings are actually their arms, which is just an elongated version of our arms and hands. So they have a thumb claw and their, their, their wings are basically their hands with a bit of skin between them. So like webbed, so, like webbed fingers. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So they have elongated webbed fingers. Um, mm. but the only difference really is their pelvis is a lot smaller because our pelvis is designed for standing. Their pelvis is designed for hanging upside down. So, and they're millions of years old as well. The oldest record fossil record is about 35 million years so when they evolved they got it right the first time which mm. is pretty clever because we certainly didn't look like this millions of years ago so it's pretty cool that we kind of a uh, convergent evolution i think yeah. it's called so pterodactyls. I, I must admit i find it fascinating that 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 bats are so you know reviled they're a little bit like snakes i've, I've got a passion yeah, for snakes yes and they're also another one that yeah. got it right when they first yeah because they, they um, really haven't changed no i mean snakes i used to I didn't really know snakes, but I, I actually lost a quail two days ago to a snake going to my aviary somehow. But, you know, can't be mad at the snake. The snake's doing what the snake does, same as the bats do what the bats do, which is pollinate and come in your garden, same as the snakes do. So, yeah. But it's having that respect for wildlife that a lot of people are lacking. So, mm. And it's just fear. Again, people fear snakes. They don't understand them. So. Well, there's this misconception that a snake will chase you. Yes. And in fact, it's the, quite the opposite. They, yes. they they really don't want to have a bar of you and they want to get as far away yeah. from you as possible. So if they're chasing you, it's probably because you'll happen to be running in the same direction. Yeah. But yes. they know there's safety. There's no, they know there's safety there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've seen videos of um, eastern brown snakes coming up to people that's reared to strike. If you just sit still, it'll settle down and mind its own business because they're not they're not aggressive animals. They're just well. They don't want to waste their venom on you because no, they can't no, eat you. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, wouldn't be putting me down their throat anytime soon. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they what people, a lot of people don't know is that an eastern brown um, has to has to eat to replenish its venom. Oh, I didn't know so that. So if it wastes its venom on a human being, which it can't eat, it then yeah, has very difficult right. has difficulty getting into a, a mouse or a rat's nest. Yeah, interesting. Killing everything that's in there has to kill everything in the nest because yeah. if it leaves anything alive after it's had a big old feast, it falls to sleep. If there's anything left alive, it's going to hurt actually him. in danger yeah. of being eaten by yeah. the rats or the mice. So do they not constrict as much as like the pythons? They do don't then? constrict at all. Oh, right. I didn't know that. No, so Interesting. The, so the elapid snakes, which is yeah. like the tiger snakes, the, the taipans, the, the, all the venomous, oh. many of the venomous ones don't constrict. They, they yeah. just go in then go bang 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 strike everything in there oh, kill yeah. everything and then they feast yeah. on what they want and then they have a big old mm. sleep digest and then they off they go again i didn't know so, that that's but, interesting but, but all but, yeah but, but you know just despised and misunderstood yeah for the purpose that they serve yeah in the ecosystem yeah. just like bats are yeah you know are absolutely required for pollination. Yeah, yeah. So they're um so the flying foxes and the eucalyptus trees have evolved for millions of years together. Um there are some species of eucalyptus that only flower at night as well. So they rely solely on flying foxes for pollination. Um and yeah, I mean there's that saying that with the koalas, no tree, no me, but mm. it's the bats that produce the tree. So no bat, no tree, no tree, no koala, mm. um, which kind of, and I mean, it's, I think it comes back to the fundamental issue that I find society has. It's that lack of respect and connection to the environment that everything here has a purpose and is doing its job. And we've just completely lost that respect. And it's, you know, and the flying foxes do have that important role. Um, and they also um, spread seeds as well. A single flying fox, it's estimated, can spread up to 65,000 seeds a night. 
um, and they fly up to 50 kilometers a night in search of food. So they're able to help cross-pollinate um, um, the genetic diversity of species of plants and that um, across great distances. Um, and I mean, the, the bee kind of, they're pretty much the bigger version of a bumblebee, basically. Mm. Um, the bees only can travel three kilometers, but the flying foxes can take them, as I said, 50 kilometers apart. So we can take a tree from a, a soggy area and cross it with a tree from a dry area and help produce this new strain of tree that can grow in both environments. And particularly with climate change and um, changes we are seeing with weather patterns and that it is important that these plants are given the opportunity to have that genetic um, diversity to help survive these things. And it's the fly foxes that are going to help do that as well. So, mm. um, and yeah, that hatred that people have for bats, they don't appreciate what a key role, and they are a keystone species, which means that they play a unique, important role for our environment. And it's just lost on people. And yeah, it's one of the biggest things at Bats Queensland that we are trying to do, which is educate people about how important they are, that you don't have to fear them. You don't have to, yeah, it's just really that trying to change people's perspectives and understandings of them so so yeah. the other thing that of course we're, we're experiencing now with these extremely hot drier yes. drier days yes. um we're, we're, we're currently in queensland and it's 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 hot and it's dry rather than being as humid as it yeah. has been yeah and of course in canberra where at the moment i'm luckily i'm missing i'm personally i'm lucky i'm missing it We've had 46, 48 degree days. What the, what are the consequences to the to the bats and the microbats with these extreme yeah. temperatures? So the microbats tend to sort of fare okay. They can they live in sort of dark tree hollows and damp. Um, well, not really damp, but dark, cool spaces. Um, but it's the flying foxes that really suffer because they live out and they sleep in the trees in the colonies at night. Um, during the day, sorry. Um, and when temperatures reach over 42 degrees, their organs shut down and they die, basically. They just die from high temperatures. Um, so what the bats sort of do to try and cool themselves down is they move to the trunk of the tree because it's cooler. Um, but because all the bats are doing that, they then get too hot. They move down the tree into the undergrowth. Um, but if council or someone's removed that, then they can suffer again. But pretty much we have what we call heat stress events, which is where they just die in tens of thousands of bats. So I think it was yesterday or the day before that Adelaide had a heat stress event. So it reached, I think, 46 degrees and tens of thousands of grey-headed flying foxes died. Um, this time last year, um, there was a heat stress event up north near Townsville. The spectacled flying foxes lost a third of their population in a single day because of high temperatures. So that was around 22,000 flying foxes, which was a third. So because of that event, the species is now considered an endangered species. Because of one day. Because of one day, they lost a third of their population. So the spectacled flying foxes are only found up around there. So when they lost that third, it just completely decimated the population. Um, the grey-headed flying foxes, which are found from about here, southeast Queensland, down, um, they've just lost tens of thousands as well through Adelaide. Um, New South Wales have just had a, an abandonment event. So because the, because the conditions have been so dry, because um, the flying foxes are blossom and nectar eaters, the trees haven't been blossoming, so they've been struggling for food. And because they're so malnourished, underweight, emaciated and struggling, they're not producing milk for the pups. So the pups are falling away from mum. The mums are leaving them and they're abandoning them. So um, we currently have, I think it's about approximately 30 bats that we are taking as a group tomorrow that are arriving from down south. A lot of the bat groups are saying, yes, we can help because there's 
hundreds of fly, um, grey-headed fly foxes orphaned because of this event. And the grey-headed fly foxes are a vulnerable species as well. So if this continues, particularly after what happened yesterday with the heat stress event, we will lose the grey-headed fly foxes mm. and the spectacled fly foxes. So it's just... It's really devastating, you know. What's the impact on the what's the impact on the carers that you're seeing yeah, when you have these huge influxes of animals due to heat stress events? Yeah. And I mean it's I mean, every group wants to step up and help. But I mean we all have our sort of daily lives to go through and we've already got animals in care and it's really hard because they require so much time. They need to be bottle fed every four to four to five hours and you've got to give them so much care and it's just Everyone wants to save all of them, but then you can't provide nearly 300 orphans the care they need. So somewhere you have to draw the line and have to have some of them euthanized because you can't care adequately for all of them. And it is just, it's devastating. And I've attended heat stress events and it's just, bats have a special mechanism in their feet where they don't require energy to hang. They require energy to release their feet. So if they were to die hanging in the trees, they will remain hanging because they don't need energy to hang. And I've been to these events where the colony has crashed and there's just thousands of bats dead hanging in trees. There's masses of them on the ground and and you can hear orphans calling, um, hanging on to because they hang on to their mum's belly. You can hear the orphans calling, crying out in the tree where mum's died and you can't get to it. It's just devastating. And to lose so many within a few hours, it's just heartbreaking because, you know, we put so much time and love and effort into every single bat we rescue and care for to see so many die so suddenly and quickly it's just it's heartbreaking it really it happens is. in a matter of hours it does yeah as soon as i mean you can kind of predict when it's going to happen because of the forecast and generally leading up to the 42 degree or plus day there've been hot days before that they're already heat stressed they're already hot dehydrated and then it just hits them and they just die it's just horrific yeah mm. it's really sad it's devastating so how do you how do you cope with the aftermath of something like that so you go along to a um, to a heat stress event and you see all these mothers and the babies and yeah. things and you can't get to them how do you how, how do you get through that I mean I kind of have to not think about it too much because I get too emotional and as I like to say that I'm quite compassionate and I, every single animal to me has a soul and a little personality and has as much right to be here as every other and it just really breaks my heart, as I, particularly as I see them as an individual. So when I see them in such mass numbers, I kind of really have to not think about it too much. I have to put on my sort of wildlife cap on mm. and just kind of focus on trying to save what you can. And, I mean, mm. it's probably not the best thing to do, just not think about it too much. But if I do, I get too emotional and I get too upset and I get too – it it can weigh you down to the point that you you can't go on anymore. If you can't go on, then that's a detriment to other wildlife that it could potentially help. But I think I like to think I handle it quite well, particularly as a trauma carer as well. I think I'm in a quite unique position that I can give that animal that respect and compassion in that moment, but then I can't dwell on it because I will get too emotional. Mm. There are a lot of people who, particularly one of our members, bless him, he gets so emotional with the rescues he can't rescue anymore because he balls his eyes out every time he sees them and... So I think you just kind of got to be in the right headspace, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I do get upset and there are days I have cried, mm. but I really try and not think about it too much. Yeah. So move, yeah. moving moving on, so you 
you you have this love and affinity with the bats, but you also do the trauma care for yeah. the, the macropods, the kangaroos and the wallabies and yeah. other things that are yeah. involved in road traffic accidents. Yeah, so I also just encompass bats as well. Really any wildlife that's critically injured and requires euthanasia outside of the wildlife hospital hours. Um, on the Gold Coast, there's only one wildlife hospital and they close at five o'clock. So, um, but yeah, but particularly with the, the kangaroos, um, I mean, really with any wildlife, they have to be athletes to survive in the wild. They've got to search for the food. They've got to protect themselves from predators. They generally have hierarchies and social structures to uphold. So they have to be fit and fighting. And if you want to focus on the kangaroos, um, when they get hit, the legs generally break or they've got some trauma that's got them on the ground. I have a whole album of gory photos where I've sort of to show people, but um, there, there's no coming back from that because when we break a leg, we're in hospital for six months, you know, eight weeks or whatever, you know, leg up, but animals can't do that. And particularly with the kangaroos, they suffer from a condition called myopathy. So that's where they get so stressed in a situation, um, the muscle shut down, a toxin gets released, and they die from stress. So even if we could fix the injury, bring them into captivity, um, they'll die from stress. So the only solution to end their suffering is euthanasia. And euthanasia, as much as it's a sad word, it's a good, kind thing for animals. It's Compassionate. A, it's a, it is, yeah. It's a peaceful death for them because – and I've seen these animals where – They've been hit and no one's reported that they've hit them and they've been they've turned up weeks later with these broken legs and it's just really sad and it's mm. it, it's a kind death for them. And, I mean, I do euthanize bats as well that have um, been attacked by dogs or have hit cars themselves and they've got really nasty breaks on their arm. You can't fix that. It's just mm. broken too far. And, I mean, as much as we want to save everything, we can't. So, and... Um, yeah, so it's a compassionate, kind thing for them. And not a lot of people, there's only four of us on the Gold Coast that do this, so that are licensed and carry, kind of, again, have to have the right headspace to do that. And everyone thinks, again, I'm a bit strange because I have so much compassion for animals, yet I go out and euthanize them, but it's all linking back into being for that animal. But I think that's part of the reason why you're able to do that because you do have that compassion and you know that the, you know that, you know, ending the, the suffering is actually yeah. far better than trying to trying to fix but, it. Yeah, and I mean, but with the macropods and that myopathy, you know that you can't necessarily fix it. But it's just it is heartbreaking when you get there and you see you always look into the animal's eyes and it's looking at you and it's frightened and it's scared because to them we're predators, you know. Mm. And you kind of got to get a hold. I do have a blowpipe and darts as well. So if if the animal's not in a position that you can walk up to it and administer the sedative, it's just into the into the leg intramuscular. Um, then we do dart them so we don't have to put stress of capture on the animal. Mm. Um, but it is it does sort of get you down sometimes um, when you know they're frightened and they're scared and they're hurting mm. and you're trying to help them but they don't know that and you yeah. just know that you're going to sort of end their life but they can't survive with that injuries and it's pretty horrific injuries so mm. some of the ones I've seen so yeah I I, I, I was involved in um, in helping in helping one a few weeks ago I was driving home at about half past 11 at night and just near the Australian War Memorial, actually, there's a, yeah. a huge population of kangaroos there. And I was driving along and I saw a, a juvenile um, on the side of the road, but in one of the areas that there's like walls on either side of the road. Oh, so it was trapped. So it was trapped. Yeah. So I decided that I would try and sort of like usher it out. And then as soon as I 
got close to it, I realized that it was clearly injured mm. either with a head head wound or something because it had, it was just all over the place. It wasn't able to hop straight. It was disorientated, yeah. lots of stuff. So I had to call call for assistance. Yeah. And Canberra um, ACT doesn't have a particularly nice policy when it comes to kangaroos. Yeah. They euthanize a lot every single year. Yeah. Um, and you're not allowed to rescue them basically. Yeah. They sent somebody out and it needed to be euthanized. I could yeah. see that from the assessment. So we had to – and I had to walk back after getting it into a space where it could be euthanized. Yeah. Um, I had to walk back about 800 meters to my car. Yeah. And about three or four steps from my car, I just heard this sound. The gunshot? Yes. Yes. And it was awful. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've I've only attended one where it had to be. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of shooting them, particularly particularly in the mm. Gold Coast, as we do have trauma carers like myself, and we do have dart rifles, so we can dart them. There's only one that I've attended, and it was a big 60, 70 kilo male, and he had two broken legs, oh, and he wow. was just plowing it through this field, and there was no way he could get anywhere close enough to dart him. And one it's of our trauma carers, yeah, he's licensed to carry guns as well. And because it was on private property, he did shoot it. He was a good shot, thankfully. Yeah. But if we if he didn't, then the animal would have been lost and suffered. Mm. But the the police on the Gold Coast will shoot them sometimes. I mean, I don't know why that doesn't necessarily come through to wild care. But at the end of the day, it's the same result. But it can be done a lot more uh, in a respectful manner, mm. could be the right word, or a lot more... Um, peaceful way, give them the sedative and depends if you're a good shot or not because I've been to ones where they've tried and they've missed and they don't want to try again. Um, but they've missed the point. They still hit the animal, but they missed the target on so the you animal. you just injured it more. Yeah, and yeah. I've been to a few of those as well and it's not pretty. So. Yeah, I've been, to a, I've been to a few roadside ones where the police have been the only people that can come. Yeah. And they do the shooting thing and they're not always – it's the wrong type of gun. Yeah, it is. It's the yes, wrong type I've heard of gun. That. So, yeah. you know, it takes three or four attempts, <sighs> if not more. Yeah. And uh, but I mean the ones that I've been to, I've I've stuck around because I know that there's a joey in the pouch. Yes. Yeah. And that, so, that is another aftermath of the wildlife getting hit because when they're born they're just little jelly bean sizes. Yeah. And obviously that's too small to hand raise. So there's a fine line between it needs to be big enough to mm. come into care, but then it also needs to be small enough that it doesn't have risk of myopathy. Yes. So there's quite a small window. So a lot of the stuff I do as well, which this is that's probably the hardest part for me, is the mum's got an injury, so the mum has to be euthanized, but then the joey's fine, it's just too small and mm. you can't bring it into care. It's not developed enough, and so you have to euthanize that little joey as well. So it's a pretty so sad you're really, topic. But. You're, really putting yourself, you're really putting yourself out there. Yeah. So what what do you do to to look after your own your own mental health when you're working around this? Yeah, I mean, I think talking about it's quite important and I mean the trauma carers, I mean my mum's really good. She listens. She she couldn't be a trauma carer. She gets too emotional, but she she listens, which is really nice. But I have quite close friends who do this as well, my trauma carer friends and I think just talking about it to get it off your chest and just just talking to people I think helps a lot and because they're in the same position, they know the same feelings, they've seen the same things. Um, I think it's just talking about it. But I think I know it's the right thing to do. I think there have been circumstances where I've maybe acted wrong and that affects me more. 
but I find that deep down I know it's the right thing I'm doing. So it affects me, but it doesn't affect me to the point that I can't continue. I kind mm. of, as I said before, I kind of, I can't think about it too heavily. While I'm doing it and I'm there, I think about it and I always hold the animal's paw and I tell it I'm sorry and, you know, sorry this happened and, you know, it's going to be all right and I talk to it, I give it compassion. But once it's sort of gone, I kind of have to go back into sort of not because generally there's people there as well so I've got to be strong for those people who are generally blubbering their eyes out and and sad and I've said look it's okay and which is me which is which is you <laughs> totally me yeah so <laughs> part of what I do is looking after people as well because those people are there and that's where I think I like to think I'm a kind person because even if they've hit the animal I kind of have to look after them and tell them it's okay don't worry it happens you've done the right thing you've called us and and yeah so part of it is looking after people as well so mm. But yeah, I kind of, I think just talking about it is a big thing. And, you know, I do have a cry every now and then. There's a few that have affected me more than others. There's one not too long ago and he, this, he was really fluffy. And he reminded me of my dog and he was quite vocal. They're not normally very vocal, the kangaroos, but he was quite vocal and it was a bit sad. So mm. I do have a cry every now and then, which I think is important to cry. Mm. So, so you know, as as human beings, we are very scent and sound orientated with memory. Yes. So do you think that the ones that are vocal who really let you know that they're in pain, yeah. do you think they're the ones that are going to stick with you more than the others? Yeah, I think ones that are unique. I mean, because I mean, I mean, every animal's unique, but there are some that kind of, they're a bit more shaggy or they have a unique characteristic, like an ear might be floppy or um, his ears might be extra large. It's more the ones that have a uniqueness about them that sticks with me. Mm. Um, and I mean, they all they all get a little bit vocal, but that one in particular was very vocal. But mm. I think it's the ones that have a unique characteristic to them that sticks with me more, lingers because mm. they're special. So mm. yeah, mm. and of course, recently um, with the bushfires that we've been having, yes, there's been uh, there's that video that went round of um, the lady rescuing the koala and the noises that, that the koala Lewis was making as she was trying to cool him yeah, down. Now, yeah, with koalas, um, if they ever get vocal, they're very, very stressed. Koalas making noises is not a good sign. So that mm. koala was very highly distressed. He was in pain. And it's just and when we try to, I help out with some koala rescues and we do a technique called flagging. So when they're up high in a tree, they can climb with broken legs and that you have to get them down so mm. we use very long poles and they have like a, a plastic bag um and like a high visibility vest on top of it so it's light um it's bright it's scary it's noisy and you sort of hold that above the koala and you gradually bring the koala down the tree um as soon as that koala starts making noises you stop because it's too stressful and you've got to come back and try again so any koala that makes those noises is a very bad mm. sign so mm. Yeah, and it's calling out in pain. It's hurting. So mm. it is It's heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 So all of this is kind of connected but also quite different to the work that you do. Yeah. So you work, you, you are a research assistant. Yes. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So um, I've just recently completed my Bachelor in Science um, and my supervisor, I did some voluntary work in a third-year project with um, he offered me a casual position between me starting my honours next year. Mm. So um, it's been an incredible opportunity because te I was very underqualified to do it, but I think because he knows me and he'd, I've been volunteering with him for a few years, 
Um, he obviously saw a bit of potential in me, which is nice to know. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I do a bit of vaccine and research in the Institute of Glycomics at the local university on the Gold Coast. Okay. So, But that's a yeah. far cry from where you it started. Is. So yeah. you, you, you mentioned to me earlier on that you went to school in the UK. I did. And that you were a poor student. But yeah, I wasn't. It, it, was, it wasn't cool to do well in school, particularly in the UK. It was cool not to do well. It was cool to be rebellious. I was always on report and getting in trouble and I had to stand outside the classrooms. And But the radiators were out there, so I got to keep warm by the yes. radiators. But I was always getting kicked <laughs> out and in trouble and my parents would go, what have you done now? And, and yeah, so I did all of my primary school years and a year of high school in England. Um, and then, yeah, then we moved over here to Australia. Um, and I went to school with that head on of, you know, too cool for school kind of thing. But the dynamic here was completely different. Students wanted to learn and I thought, oh, this is, this is, and people were nice as well. Yeah. So, and it was warm. And it was warm. Yeah. <laughs> a bit too warm, but, but no, so it was good. And I had a completely fresh perspective. And I think because I'd done a year in high school in England, I kind of cheated a little bit because the curriculum was pretty much the same. So I kind of did well initially for the first year because I'd done it before. Yeah. Um, so I kind of thought, well, I better keep up appearances. So I put a little bit more effort in. And then you went to university and did and a then, bachelor's of yeah, science. Yeah, well, I worked in retail and the trade industry for a few years and I thought, I can't do this for the rest of my life. So um, I went to university. Um, I initially joined to do environmental science, but then all these doors opened into a world I never thought possible for me. And so I, I was quite proud of myself achieving what I did. So, yeah, mm. something I'm happy about, which is... Great. And what does the future look like from a work perspective? Um, positive, I hope. Yeah. Um, I've got a few more years to go. I'd like to do my honours. And if I do my honours well, then hopefully I could step into a PhD. So if that happens, that's the next five years sorted. Um, but then beyond that, um, it's just a matter of um, picking up contracts and that. But I try not to think too far ahead because it does stress me. Okay. I think, oh, what am I going to do? But it's not just focus on the now, which is focusing on getting the next few steps of my uh, education so um and do wildlife yeah. does wildlife feature oh definitely forever? wildlife will always be there because i did some voluntary work with in a different lab and i was talking to him all about the animals and then it'd been a year since i seen him and he said oh you're still doing the wildlife i said always wildlife will always have a place in my heart so it's always going to be going ticking away in the background so and my kids i like to think will be wildlife warriors one day so mm. yeah mm. tell me about the tin Oh, I have a tin. So this is where <laughs> would you describe yourself as strange comes in. So, um, yeah, so when I do my trauma calls and my rescues, I have a tin of weird things that I've collected over time. So um, I have a few fishing hooks and fishing lines that have come from bats that have got caught up in fishing wire. So the bats um, generally gets caught in their mouth and they just get damaged. They have to be euthanized. Um, but then I keep the big fishing lures. Um, I have a hook um, no hook, sorry, I have a spike from a fence where a kangaroo tried to hop over it and it got snagged on its tail. So it was hanging off the fence. So I, the spike came away with the animal. So I kept the spike. I have a tooth. Um, I have a couple of dart needles that have got bent and, um, I, I have a, I have a flapper skin as well, <laughs> which is a bit strange, but a fur where a bat had got caught on barbed wire and it was so horrifically caught, the animal had to be sedated on the wire and euthanized. So then I had to cut away to get the animal down. So I kept the bit of skin, which is a bit morbid. I know that, um, a friend of mine works at the, um, wildlife hospital and there's a few things that float around in there and, collects them for me so I have um I had a bat that came in and 
when they get stressed, they can abort as well. And she aborted her baby and I kept the placenta. And I also have a little bat fetus, which is pretty cool. Um, it's, it's good educational things. Mm. Um, and I also have a bat skull recently. Oh, and I have a thumb, a bat thumb as well that got amputated. So <laughs> a thumb. Yeah, that's, 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 that's where strange things, comes are in. Are these things that are sort of like kept in their little formaldehyde yes. jars? Yeah. Wow, so yeah. you've got like a little so sort of science, I do. Little science lab yes. window. So that's where people on. think I'm strange because I, I have so much compassion and love for the animals, yet I have this little morbid collection of things downstairs. So not everyone's privileged that information. So yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think it's actually really. I think it's fast. I think it's fascinating because I'm. Yeah. I, I. I have a. I have a collection of snake skins. Oh, good. And, it's not just me. Um, and and lizard lizard things. And the thing the, the the thing with the lizards that always fascinates me is is the glove. So when they shed their skin to grow, yeah. they they will shed their little paws, oh. and it comes off, and it's like a complete glove. Oh, that's fascinating! Which is which is really quite wonderful. And then with the snakes, it's the face. So they'll they'll yeah. they'll sort of shed their their head, and it will come off in one piece if you're yeah, lucky. I've seen those. So you see the sort of like the eye scales because they do have a scale over their eyes. Yeah. And then you sort of like see the mouth line and everything. So yeah. I, I do get it. I yeah. do absolutely. But I think it's it. just because and it's, I've had the collection, if you want to call it that, going for a while. And it's just looking back at it and it helps me remember those animals as well. So yeah, it's, it's strange. So, but no, it's weird. Things but meaningful. That, yeah. And every piece has its own story. And I, I know it's a really weird thing to do, but it just kind of. I don't know. My other collection is cinema tickets, so they're quite different to each other. But yeah. So you go to the cinema a lot? Well, I used to before I started uni and work. But no, I do like to collect my. T- I've been collecting them for about twelve years now, so it's mm. kind of cool. I like to look back at them, and and it's it's kind of funny as well because um, once we euthanize um, the animals, we have to dispose of the body as well. Mm. And the messages I send to people will be, um, "I've just dropped the body off. I've got a lot of blood on me." I thought if I ever get done for murder trial, they're going to look at the history of my messages, <laughs> which is talking about blood and dropping the body off and, you know, um, and then, you know, I'm going to get caught up for murder. But then I can say, well, actually, I have a cinema ticket which covers me for that night in question. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe they'll balance So it's a movie in the making. Yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. potentially. So, and I've, I've had, it's quite funny because, um, sometimes the police will be driving past and there'll be like a lump in the road, blankets, a crowd of people. They just slowly drove past and couldn't care less. And other times I've had ambulances turn up because someone's reported someone's been hit. And other times, because we have large body bags that we put them into, I'll be dragging this big bag, <laughs> dumping it into a bin. And this police car will just literally slowly be driving past watching me and they don't ask or question anything. So <laughs> it's like, well, could be a person potentially so <laughs> but you just have this no innocent look about yeah, you yeah well i must obviously. do so yeah it's a disguise or so. maybe they think that you're not big enough to be able to heft a, heft a big body potentially well no i surprise people um i'm yeah. not a very fit person but a lot of people go um because i'm only 20 i say only 26 i feel quite old but i pull up to these rescues i have a small mazda too and they kind of think oh what are you gonna do you know mm. young woman turning up in a little car and i step out and yeah, yeah. then i i grab it I tackle it or whatever and then I pick it up put it in the car and one guy goes oh you made a soft you know 
penis out of that one and I'm like well what can I say so soft cock eh? a that, soft cock out of that one that's what he said that. okay well there we go yeah <laughs> I think he was, he was a bit drunk as well so yeah. he said oh you made a soft cock out of that one so he'd been drinking and I surprised people so yeah. um yeah. yeah I had a I had a um a, a a big guy, I turned up to do a snake relocation. Yeah. And when I was driving close, I sort of, I was talking to him and I'm sort of like, I'm on my way. I'm only like three or four minutes away. I said, where are you now? He said, on the car. I said, I'm sorry, you're in the car? No, no, I'm on the car. (laughs) And I, and I turned up and he was this great big, massive unit of a guy sitting on top of the roof of his little of his little car there was a dent in the roof because he literally just because he'd been sitting on the car and the snake was gone by this point oh dear but it had been curled up in front of his doorstep oh so when he arrived home and he just basically just jumped on top of the car because he was so scared of the snake it's it's weird though because i mean i did a rescue um couple last year was last night um it was a security guard and he was absolutely petrified that I had needles and stuff in the car as well and and I've been out to and he was just oh I can't watch and he has to walk away and then I've had ones with the bats as well and the guy says oh it's over there somewhere and he would just point in the vague distance of his garden (laughs) the vague direction (laughs) and he goes oh are you gonna touch it are you gonna pick it up and because I've been doing bats for about six seven years I don't use gloves because I know how to handle them Mm. Um, and they go, oh, you're not wearing gloves or anything. And there's no, mm. no, it's okay. And yeah. these people are petrified and it kind of makes you smile. And the first time I was attacked by a kangaroo was quite a funny story, actually. It was a, I hadn't got my drugs at the time and it was a young Joey that had been hitting on the ground. Um, and I pulled up, it was outside of a quite a posh area and they have security and security guard goes, it's all, I was over there and I picked it up and so this is a kangaroo. This is a young kangaroo Joey. Yeah. And I'm trying to get it, because I was quite inexperienced, I'm trying to get it into a pouch, but because it was kicking, I said to the security guard, I said, could you hold the bag open, the pouch that we put it in to help settle it down? And he was frightened of this Joey kicking, so it took a while. To, it was only small, maybe a, a kilo and a half. Mm. Um, and he would go, oh, and run away every time it kicked. And so by the time I got in the bag, it had been calling out, and then the mum had obviously heard the commotion and come out the bushes. And so she was grunting and growling, and she was kicking me, and he got in his car and drove away. And I'm on the side of the road at 2 o'clock in the morning with this kangaroo in a bag, and the security guard's driven off, <laughs> lousiest security guard ever. So he's just pissed he off did, and left he you. He said, I'll get in your car. He gets in his, he drives off, and I'm like, dude. And this, but because the baby was quiet in the bag, the mum didn't know where it was. She, she was still growling and scratching and kicking me. It wasn't a, an aggressive kick per se. Mm. Um, this taxi driver was driving past and he was tooting and bonking his door on the kangaroo because my car was new at the time. I thought, I don't want to get in my car and it kicks and dents my car because my <laughs> car's new, but I can heal, my car can't. So yeah. it was just very strange. But so yeah. you came away with scratches and a few I bruises. I did. I came home, I had massive, and I was, when I go through a stressful situation, I laugh and cry. Mm. So I was crying, but I was laughing because it was a bit scary. I'd never been through that before. Mm. And the lady who was meeting me, she didn't know what had happened because I couldn't talk because I was laughing and crying. And so she was worried that something had happened. And mm. I come home and she heard me crying and laughing as well, my mum. And she's like, what happened? Oh, my God. And there's these big bruises on my leg. And yeah, I was hobbling for a few days after that. But no, it's quite funny what you expect of some people and you know, when the time comes, they kind of, oh, okay, I'll sort it out then. So <laughs> you just get in there and yeah, you do it. Yeah. So, yeah. but, um, yeah, a lot of people don't expect much from me. I like to surprise them. So, oh, yeah, it's wonderful to surprise yeah, people. Yeah, it yes. is definitely. Absolutely. So, thank you so much. But my last question yeah. to you is 
What do you see as your mental health future and wildlife? Um, I think my sort of mental health, I think, I think I've been going okay and I think I just need to sort of keep going as I am. I know that sound doesn't sound very, um, but it's more that I think just accepting that it is what it is. At the end of the day, there's nothing that you can change and particularly with wildlife as well, it's, there are so many parameters involved in looking after them and things that you can do and you can't do. And, um, but I think my future, I'm optimistic about it, I think as well. Um, but I'll always be looking after wildlife and I think I'll always do the trauma caring because not a lot of people want to do that. Not a lot of people like to do that. And I think I've got to do it for the animals. So I think there's a lot of people who would like to be able to do it, but can't. Yeah. And I think that's where I feel quite privileged in the fact that I I am able to do it and I can do it and I kind of feel I have to keep doing it for them because if I don't do it, who will do it? It just mm. puts more pressure on those who are – because there's only four of us on the Gold Coast, so it's, it's – yeah. It's quite a big area that's covered. Oh, definitely, covered. definitely. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm optimistic. Well, thank you yeah. very much, Ashley, no, for talking you. to me today. I'm Frances. Ashley was my guest. She shared some secrets. Thank you to you, the listener, for listening. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening to Secrets We Share. If you're interested in sharing some of your secrets, please visit our website at secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Keep an ear out for our next episode soon.